If you recall, I'm so good at this that our first Sunday here when I candidated, I knocked over every single stand. <laughs> you have amazing discernment in who you've given this assignment. Let's start again. You ready? All right. In 2 Samuel 24, David had a wobbly. Instead of trusting in the Lord, he wanted to trust in the size of his army. And so he did what Jewish kings were utterly forbidden to do. He took a census to gauge how many men were available for military service. And God sent swift judgment on this hubris. A great pestilence broke out and 70,000 citizens died. To this end, God, to end the judgment, sent a prophet that David must go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And so David went... And when this man, Aruna, saw his king coming and knowing all that was happening, the Bible says Aruna went out and he paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing, the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. And then Aruna said to David, Let the Lord my king take and offer what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. And all this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. He didn't hesitate for a moment to, to, to do what God needed done. He was willing to give up his property, his valuable animals, everything he had to work for the Lord. But King David was a man after God's own heart. Now, he was a man, so he made a mistake. He took a census when it was forbidden, and he was paying the consequence. But he was a man after God's own heart. And so David wisely replies to this offer of generosity, No, I will buy it for a price. I will not offer a burnt offering to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. And so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Because David understood there is no such thing as a sacrifice where there is no sacrifice. It's definitionally impossible. And I'm told in World War II there was a chaplain who was assigned to an army field hospital, and one day he was at the bedside of a young GI who had just awoken from emergency surgery, from catastrophic injuries. And the chaplain gently explained to this groggy G.I. coming out of his stupor, Son, you lost an arm in this great cause. And the G.I. replied, I didn't lose it, I gave it. And in like manner, Galatians 1.4 does not say that Jesus lost his life. It says that Jesus gave his life. It says Jesus gave his life to deliver you and me. Now the Bible says as Christians we're to be imitators of God, and the Apostle Paul spells out what being an imitator of God ought to look like. Maybe you've heard this before. It's in Philippians 2, and it goes like this. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from His love, if you have any fellowship in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then be like-minded. Having the same love, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not only look out for your own interests, but for the interests of others. 
your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be retained, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Our word excruciating comes ex, out of, the cross. One of the most painful ways to die. Friends, we're in Nehemiah 11 and 12 today. Nehemiah 11 and 12 reveal five principles of kingdom sacrifice. If we are to see the advancement of Christ's kingdom in our day, we must learn to be like Jesus today. We're going to have to merely not look out for our own interests, but instead we'll have to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness around us. So I'd like for you to turn with me in the Word of God to Nehemiah 11. Nehemiah 11 is in the Old Testament. If you do not have a copy of Scripture with you, just grab the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. Please use one of ours. Nehemiah 11 should be on page 514 of the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. And as we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word in prayer. Lord Jesus, we invite you this morning to speak to us, to, to prick our ears, to uh, open our eyes, to raise up within us an understanding to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, that we would look from this Old Testament story and see these five powerful principles of how the people of God got busy with the kingdom of God and not the empire of self. And would you align us, Lord, the, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil all press us in to impress us that we are what matters. But you are our king, and we are your subjects. And you are building an unshakable kingdom that the very gates of hell cannot prevail over it. And you have invited us to join you. Lord, we know what your nature is. Your son has told us, my father is always at work. And then you said, and I too am always working. And then you turned to us and said, night is coming when no man can work. And so we must put our hand to the plow and not look back in the day. May we be effective and productive. May we be kingdom-impacting servants. May this be a kingdom-impacting church. And may this be a kingdom-impacting sermon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read the first two verses of Nehemiah 11, and we're going to select verses in Nehemiah 12 later. Now the leaders of the people in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring out one of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to live in Jerusalem. Remember that the city now had great walls. They had waited 95 years and God accomplished in a, a very short span of time what had taken to see happen. And the walls were up, but the city was empty. Walls don't defend people. Defenders defend people. If the holy city was going to survive, there had to be inhabitants that lived in the city. And Nehemiah told us back in chapter 7 around verse 4 that the city was large, but it was largely empty. For no new homes had been built because very few residents were inside. There were a few merchants, a few traders, and a few of the priestly class, but there needed to be more people. 
And so last week, we learned the first principle of kingdom sacrifice. We learned the principle of tithing. Unless you import something in the Bible that it's not saying, and something that we're not saying, I want to really encourage you, if you missed last Sunday, go back, listen to it online, and we took time and we looked at the principle of tithing because there's a lot of misunderstanding on what is and isn't to New Testament saints. God's plan for you and I as New Testament Christians is grace-giving. It's found in uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But that being said, this principle of tithing predated the law. And it was used in the Old Testament for more than just monetary means. Here in Nehemiah, it was used to draw people. In Nehemiah 11, a tithe of the people, not of their money, was called to relocate to God's holy city so it would flourish and it would be defensible in a world that was hostile to God's agenda. And so this brings us to our second principle of kingdom sacrifice. It's number two on your outlines today. It's the principle of risking. The principle of risking. That sounds uncomfortable. It is. It sounds biblical. It is. It sounds like the kind of thing you'd like to avoid. It is. It is the principle of risking. Verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1. Now the leader of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots. And one out of ten went to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Why did the people bless those people willing to relocate to the holy city? Because, friends, theirs was a brave obedience to Jesus. Friends, this was hardship duty. You didn't want to do this in your natural man. These 10% called by God took a great risk in leaving their homes and fields and friends to relocate where it was desolate. They would have to build their house with their own two the orchards and vineyards and everything they had planted and had 95 years of maturity that they'd eked out of nothing was going to be left behind. They were going to live next to strangers and they were going to start all over. Friends, they'd be relocating their families, their precious little children, their, their grandmothers, all, all those people that are vulnerable to the very heart of where the enemy would ever attack because if the enemy wants to wipe out God's people, Jerusalem is the place to do it. And so what we're seeing here is, is this principle of risking. God often calls us to situations that from our vantage point are clearly risky. Have you noticed that in the Bible? Have you noticed that in church history? Then why are we so shocked when he knocks on our door and we go, but wait a minute, God, that seems risky. C.S. Lewis used to say to love is to risk. Any of you ever loved someone and that risk was hard and strayed and wandered and self-destructed and you kept loving? But that meant you kept risking. Uh, John Piper notes there's a great biblical legacy of great risk-takers. Joab facing the Syrians on one side and the Ammonites on the other. Well, he said to his brother uh, Abishai, let us be courageous for our people and may the Lord do whatever seems good to him. And he took a risk, though pressed on both sides. Uh, Esther broke the royal law. You remember when we were in the book of Esther? And to save her people, she said, look, if I perish, I perish. But she took a risk 
to save the people of God. Uh, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, in addition to being hard to spell, you know, they were comrades and they were walking together for the Lord. And they refused to bow down to the pagan king's idol. And they said, our God whom we serve can deliver us. But if not, see, they didn't know if they were going to We know that. They didn't know But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods. They took a risk. And when the Holy Spirit told Paul that in every city awaited him imprisonment and affliction, Paul says this in Acts 20.24. You might write it next to your passage today. Acts 20.24. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course. That is what God has laid out for me to bring in glory. If we are going to see God's kingdom advance in our generation, we must answer God's call to make kingdom sacrifices. And that's going to mean we're going to have to, at times, take kingdom risks. And sometimes these risks will have a cost. Our Lord Jesus said, brother will rise up against brother. I don't get it. I came to Jesus and my family's not happy. Jesus said that's how it would sometimes be, didn't he? Why are you surprised? Jesus says in Luke 21, 16, you will be delivered up even by your own parents. And it goes on to say, and some of you will even be put to death. And we know throughout church history that is true. We know in parts of the world today that is true. Now, I want to thank God that for most of us here in New Jersey, nobody's threatening to take our life if we take our gospel to our neighbor, amen? We have it good, know that. However, the Bible still tells us in New Jersey that we are called to carry our cross, the instrument of death to self, right? And so for most of us, for most of the time, the potential risk in sharing the gospel, in sharing Jesus, the mission we're here, is not death. It's that we're going to feel awkward. And potentially, but not certainly, experience some social ostracism. That's our price. A pretty low price. But it seems to hold us back because we don't want to take the, the risk. The Bible speaks on this. In Hebrews 13.13, 13, I think we've got a slide. Hebrews 13.13 13 looks at this issue of being feeling awkward and social ostracism and it stares at it right in the eye. It says, Hebrews 13.13, 13, let us go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. For here we have no lasting city, but the city that is to come. Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. This isn't new. This is a new age. It's a new era. It's a hard time to share Jesus. Hey friends, every time is a hard time to share Jesus, and every time is the best time to share Jesus. And He brought you to Jesus so you'd share Jesus, and you're alive right now for that purpose. For you are his witnesses. If we're going to see the kingdom of God advance in our generation, we will have to answer Jesus' call. That always means we'll have to take some kingdom risks. Now that never means reckless risks. That never means risks prompted by our own imagination and, 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 and impulsive machinations. Not stupid risks. But when the God Spirit is truly prompting he will often push us out of our comfort zone to follow Him. And that brings us to the next point. Yes, we have to take kingdom risks, but 
God must call us to those risks. You can't call yourself. And that's principle three today. The principle of calling. The principle of calling. Now, how He does it in Nehemiah is different than how He does it today, but He still does it. So look again at Nehemiah 11.1. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people, what did they do? They cast lots. And what did that accomplish? Through the casting of lots, they brought out one of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. How were the folks selected? They were selected by the casting of lots. God called them by the casting of lots. All right, so what is lots? We don't cast lots a lot, right? So, so casting of lots, you would take these little stones... And you would mark them in, in different ways. You could put a color on them, you could put a scratch on them, whatever. And these stones would be taken up into your outer garment, into the fold of your lap, and they'd be hidden. And you'd shake your lap, and that would shake the stones, and you'd reach in, and you'd pull out a marked stone, and those marked stones would indicate who would do whatever they were deciding. It's sort of like drawing straws today. A straw. And they're different sizes, and if your straw is drawn, you're taken. Now, friends, to us, the casting of lots seems random, but the scriptures say it's not. Proverbs 16.33, you ought to write it next to uh, uh, Nehemiah 11.1, Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. God was in this. This is how God did it many times in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 16, God used the providential casting of lots to determine which goat should be sacrificed on the Day of Atonement. In, in, in Numbers uh, 26, God used the providential casting of Lot to divide his land allotments among the tribes. Where would they go? Well, they cast lots, and Judah got this one, and Benjamin got this one, and God used the casting of lots. It was providential means of calling people to their land. In Acts chapter 1, God used the casting of lots to do what? To determine who should replace Judas. They looked and said who had followed Jesus, his whole ministry, who met the categories, and there were two, and they didn't know what to do, and so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he became the replacement to Judas. Now, you may have noticed we don't cast lots today. Huh. We didn't even know what it was. We had to talk about how it works. And that's because the Spirit of God came in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost and started the church age. And we as church age believers were never called to cast lots. In fact, no one ever cast lots again in all the Bible after the Spirit came on the church age. Because you and I, the Bible says in James, are to pray for wisdom. And he gives generously without finding fault. The Bible says we're to keep in step with the Spirit. So we're to listen to His leading in His Word, through His people, through His prompting. We don't need to cast lots. So the means from Nehemiah to today has changed, but the principle remains. The means of calling was casting lots in Nehemiah 11, but the principle of calling is still true today in 2019. God must call us to areas of service. Now, we say Jesus is Lord, but do we mean it when he calls us to do something that's risky, something that's different than we, we thought our life would go? Each of us, friends, we serve at the pleasure of our king, and he to send his subjects day to day, minute by minute, and over our lifetime, wherever he wants to. Jesus is the Lord of the church. He's the head of the body. He knows what he wants to do through me and you and our children 
and our grandchildren. And it might be different than what you want done. About 15 years ago, when I was thinner and younger, God called our family to plant a church. And he had us do it just outside of Gary, Indiana. We bought a house like six streets from the city limits of Gary, Indiana. And You know, I don't know how much you read the paper, but 15 years ago, that wasn't the best place to plant a church. We planted the church there because all the churches were dying or leaving and moving to where there was less challenge. But God made it very clear, that's where we were to plant this church. And so we said, Lord, we'll obey. And we planted that church based on his very clear leading. And when that church plant flourished, it went from 60 to 120, and God did many wonderful things in a very short period of time. And, and once that church became viable and stable, and we were giving to missions, and, and we had bought 17 acres of land, and we hadn't even been two years old yet, and we had enough money to pay all our staff, and everything was working, God very counterintuitively said, now leave. I'm done with you there. They have a plan. They have a, a mission to follow. But I have a new mission for you. And he called our family to Zimbabwe. And if you pretty much had to guess where's the last place I would have guessed we would have been called after Gary, it was Zimbabwe. At the time, Zimbabwe was not granting new visas to Western missionaries. Couldn't get one. So how would we get in the country? How would we be permitted, once we get off the plane, to stay? And the answer was, nobody knew. At the time, Zimbabwe was in the death throes of hyperinflation. There were crushing fuel queues, and the grocery stores were basically empty. So how would we eat? How would we furnish a house when nothing's for sale? Uh, at the time, Ethan was three. He had severe hemophilia A, which he still has today. And God was sending us to a country where the government hospitals didn't even have aspirin much less any factor eight, there wasn't one hematologist left in all the country. How would our insurance let us go to Zimbabwe if we moved out of the United States? Because this is before the Affordable Care Act, friends, and back then insurers could deny anybody with a pre-existing condition if they leave their job and do something else. Ethan's condition was uh, about 100000 then. It's much more expensive now. Here's another question. How will we sell our house in two months from when God told us to sell it to when God needed us in Zimbabwe? How's that going to work? You ever try and sell a house six streets from Gary? Boy, they're hotcakes. They just move. What are we going to do with all of our stuff? We sold our house. We got a house full of stuff. We have no more house. That's a problem. How are we going to raise support? Do you know we didn't visit a single church? We kept pastoring our church, and we sent an email. We think God is sending us to Zimbabwe. Didn't visit a single church. And in a couple months, God answered. God had a plan. Wasn't my plan. Didn't know how it was going to work. But just like in Nehemiah's day, God's plan involved kingdom sacrifices that necessitated taking kingdom risks because we knew that God was clearly and unequivocally leading us. He was calling us. We didn't dream this up. He told us to do it. And so months we had prayed. Before all this started happening, my wife felt very burdened to pray. God, what do you want me to do with my heart for missions? And God, what do you want me to trust you in? And, and, and that was starting in January, and over a series of months of praying, God began to answer that in ways we didn't expect. Now, I'm not going to lie. It was very scary at times. There was much uncertainty. People would ask us questions, and I didn't have the answers. But I knew God called us to obedience. 
And we have story after story after story after story of God providing. Now, we sent you and other brothers SOS prayer requests from Zimbabwe again and again and again. We needed a visa. We needed whatever we needed. And we would pray, and we'd ask you to pray, and God provided every single time. And we have amazing stories of God just blinding officials to what we bring in, opening doors, sending what seemed to be an angel. We got neat stories. Because God had a plan. We had a part. We had to take a risk. We're not. When God called us. God had a plan. He wanted to train leaders in Zimbabwe. God had used the great upheaval economically in Zimbabwe, shattering everything in the country, to bring about a great revival spiritually in that same country. When they lost everything, they needed something to lean on. And you know who was still there? Jesus. And he was just as firm of an anchor when they were the richest or one of the richest countries in black Africa, and then they became one of the poorest. And God needed to train all these folks who needed to pastor these new churches that had come to life through the death of the country. And so the Harari Theological College went from having 32 students who had to share eight textbooks to having the largest and most current theological library in the whole country in eight years. The Harari Theological College went from 60 years of its existence. It started under a tree when when Kim's grandfather taught the men how to read and then how to read the Bible. And now it's in the capital. And for 60 years, it never had more than 60 students. But in eight years, it went from 60 students to 120 on-campus students and 100 distance students throughout the country. In eight years, the college quadrupled in a context where most of the other colleges were shuddering. We couldn't. Uh, Through HTC, God opened a bookstore. And it brought in low-cost Bibles for all these new Christians that needed to understand the Bible. And so, through the bookstore, God was not only simultaneously subsidizing Bibles to new Christians, but he was also subsidizing the training of those pastors so that HTC had an income stream. And all of it brought glory to Jesus. God does those things. God had a plan. We had a part. I didn't know my part in the plan week to week, day to day, year to year. I just knew the part he wanted me to do next. The Bible says the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of the dawn, getting brighter until the fullness of day. He'll tell you to walk. He'll give you enough light so you don't leave the path and you don't trip on the path. He doesn't show you where the path is going to go. Sometime at the end of your life, you look back and you go, that's why I took that turn. Sometimes we don't know till eternity. The only question you have is, am I listening? to where he wants me to be walking. Friends, i got to tell you, the most exciting and the most frustrating days of my life happened in Zimbabwe. The most exhilarating and exhausting times of ministry were in Zimbabwe. And I'm going to tell you, I would have missed it all if I were not obedient to God's clear calling. And so, friends, God has a plan for you, too. God has a plan for Calvary Church. Do you remember I was supposed to be in Adelaide, Australia? Uh, I I came here to preach at your missions conference about four years ago, and team was going to have us go to a struggling Bible college in South Australia, in Adelaide, and plant a church, and I came here just to speak once, and and Glenn made it twice, and and then Paul came, and some others came, and said, I think you're supposed to be my pastor, and I said, no, (laughs) and God said, yes, and I was your pastor, and it was totally not what I expected. Now, some of you joined Calvary in these last four years. 
God called you too, to us, for Jesus. It isn't random chance that's bringing people to Calvary any more than it was randomness of casting lots that brought 10% to Jerusalem to defend the holy city. Friends, God calls. God is going to call each of us to daily obedience for Jesus. God has divine appointments. This morning I was praying with two men and they both had incidents of God working this week for people we had been praying for. They'd been building relationships. They'd been being... uh, Christian, in a non-Christian environment, and it led to conversations because God is making divine appointments. You are His servant. Are you listening to His leading? God's going to call some of us to new levels of kingdom service. We prayed about that last Sunday. God will call some of us into vocational ministry. Perhaps some of you to far-flung places that need gospel assistance where there isn't much light, so he's going to send some light from us to them. Are you listening? God is not through calling. Are we through listening? Are we willing? And that brings us to the next point, point four. Point four in our outlines today, the principle of blessing. The principle of blessing. The principle of of blessing. The Bible says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to Jerusalem, to the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. Verse 2, and the people blessed the men, now listen to this, who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Now they weren't willing, they cast lots, God told them, but they had to choose whether they were going to go. You see, you don't choose your calling, you choose your obedience. And so both are true. God's call And our willingness. And do you know what the people of God should do when God is clearly, even if it's counterintuitively, riskily calling? We should stand next to them and we should start blessing the faithful. Those called by Lot were viewed by God's people as willingly offering. God called, they obeyed. God's people blessed those willing to obey. Friends, are we blessers of the called? Do we encourage the one who watches our little ones right now in the nursery? Because they're not in church, so you can be. Or do we go, well, my kid, you know, had a fever and you didn't, you know, wipe their nose left to right like I asked, you know. Do we bless those called into ministry? Shame on us for being hindrances to the faithfulness of others. Do, Do we bless and encourage those who are brave enough to use their gifts up here? They're they're leading us in worship. They're putting themselves out there. But are we quick to complain to those volunteers that the music's not to our liking or the chorus was not to our traditional singing or or to our timing or to our... Do you see how we can be agents of blessing or we can be toxic sewers of discouragement? Which one are you going to be for Jesus? The enemy will send discouragement. So Hebrews 3.13 says this. Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another daily. As long as it's called today. That is, until Jesus comes back. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Satan is going to make you want to not be joyous and not be encouraged in ministry. And you and I are to come alongside and be encouragement that people stay faithful to Jesus. Will you, Ephesians 4.29. Ephesians 4.29 is a great verse. 
Do not let any unwholesome talk. I don't like this. Come out of your mouth. I can't help it rolling around your head, but you can keep it from coming out of your teeth. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. I just need to say that. Well, maybe you do. Maybe you need to talk to someone in spiritual leadership. Maybe you need counseling. But many times, we don't say it to people. That we say it to people to get what we want or just we like to gripe. And the Bible says, do not let any wholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building others up according to their needs that it benefit those. Oh, that we would be channels of blessing and not sewers of discouragement to the king's servants. Listen to how the people of God viewed those called of God, attested to God. Nehemiah 11.6 says, all the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 what? Valiant men. Good. Nehemiah 11, 7 and 8. And these are the sons of Benjamin. Salu, the son of Meshulam, and, and the son of Joed, and the son of Padiah, and the son of Coliah, and the son of Messiah, and the son of, uh, son of Josiah, and his brother were men of valor. 928 of them. Valiant men, men of valor, is what the Bible said. Nehemiah 11.14, and their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. Now, valor is the Hebrew word chayel. It, is, it has the sense of, a, 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 of an exceptional or heroic courage in battle. God's people in our passage view those who took king risks and who made sacrificial, sacrificial realignments of their lives for the sake of God's kingdom, they've used them as chayel, as men of valor, women of valor, of value, of honor. Friends, how do you understand our ministers and missionaries in the church of Jesus Christ, globally and locally? Are they heroes or are they zeros in your thinking? Are they neo-colonial shills disrupting ancient cultures or are they ambassadors of Christ whose feet bring the good news to needy lands? The enemy and our society have painted ministers, whether that be a missionary or a pastor, they've painted them as all being malevolent and mercenary. And, and that's where we get the hucksterism of Elmer Gantry, wins Academy Awards, and the apathetic Reverend Lovejoy from The Simpsons. Sadly, this character is sometimes, caricature is sometimes true. For the Bible does say there are sinister ministers and false teachers. That's true. But it's not how the Bible wants us to view the faithful. Ephesians 4 is clear on this matter. The culture views ministers as vultures, but not the scriptures. God's word calls these individuals who give their life to vocational service, he calls them grace gifts. In Ephesians 4, 7, the Word of God says, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's a grace gift. What is it? When he ascended on high, he led host his captives and he gave gifts to men. Not gifts like administration of those two individuals, but rather in this passage, it's gifts of individuals. What gifts? Verse 11, and he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry for the building up the body of Christ. Now, some egotistical people walk around believing they are God's gift to humanity. Usually it's because they can throw a football. By the way, I built this three months ago. I didn't know there was going to be a snow day. Just having to be Super Bowl Sunday. Isn't that cool? Because they can throw a football. Or because they can sing a melody with the aid of auto-tune. Which I don't think is actually singing. 
I might be able to sing with autotune. <laughs> Celebrities view themselves as God's gift, but our Lord views those He calls into kingdom service for building up His body as His gift to us, His church, whom He loves and died for. Are we biblical in our thinking in these areas? Can I ask you real, real simple? Are you as delighted if your son was going into ministry as if he was going into medical school? Many people aren't. Are you as supportive of your daughter relocating your grandchildren to Mosul for the gospel as you would be if they were relocating to Silicon Valley for some corporate entity? See, are we heavenly or worldly in our thinking? Are we prepared to say, like Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done? Now, so far we've been in chapter 11, this, this whole sermon last week and this week, and we've looked at calling and risking and tithing and blessing. But chapter 12 is going to be talking about the priests. And it's kind of tedious to read. It's a lot of hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names. I'll let you work on that at home. But we get our final principle from our final chapter that we'll look at this Sunday, and that's Nehemiah chapter 12, and it's the principle of persevering. And I'm going to give you just a little bit, a taste of the passage, and you can get the full meal deal at home. The principle of persevering. Nehemiah 12 lists all the priests who quietly, humbly, and yet perseveringly served God for all the decades from the time of the return 95 years ago under Zerubbabel to the days of Nehemiah that were happening right then. So here's a sample of these names and what's happening. In Nehemiah 12, the Bible says, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel 95 years ago, the son of Sheatel and Jeshua and Sariah and Jeremiah and Ezra and Amariah and Muluk and Hattush and uh, Sekinah, and he goes on. And in verse 6, these are the chief of the priests and all their brothers in a different day, in the day of Jeshua. And these were the Levites, and he names them. Now skip down to verse 26 of chapter 12. And these were in the days of Jehoiakim. Different days, longer, farther down the road. The son of Jehua, the son of Zodak. Uh, uh, in the days of Nehemiah. Now they were at Today, the contemporary. What was happening in their situation? The governor and of Ezra and of the priests and the scribes. He's looking at these people for 95 years of faithful service. I don't want you to miss this last point. This last point is absolutely critical, Calvary Church. It is one of the surest ways to measure the effectiveness of any kingdom-impacting organization. Any church, any mission, any ministry that does not do point five will almost always fail. You see, it's all well and good to make a kingdom sacrifice, to answer God's calling, to go out risking, to encourage others and, and be a blessing, to sacrifice through tithing. But if we are not persevering in this task, if we only go out with excitement and come home when we have discouragement, we will not complete this task. It will all be for naught if we don't embrace the, the principle of persevering, which is why Galatians 6-9 exists. I'd like for you to write it in your Bibles, and I'd like for you to put it in your hearts. Galatians 6-9 is one of the most kingdom-impacting verses in all the Bible. You ought to memorize it, you ought to internalize it, because it is good food. To the extent we utilize Galatians 6-9 is probably the extent to which we will experience success or failure in our endeavors. Galatians 6-9 says this, and let us not grow weary of doing good. What does the Bible assume you're going to eventually do? Grow weary. 
because the world, the flesh, and the devil, and sometimes our own team, are going to gripe and snipe and squeeze and press to try and get you to stop in your service for Jesus. And let us not grow weary of doing good. Not mischief, not our own agenda. God's agenda, doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. You know, later this summer, everyone who is going to pick up corn is because somebody first planted the corn. And nobody who put out corn is going to have corn magically appear. Unless a deer makes a deposit. I know there's exceptions to the rule. But you know, kind of, it's not going to have an acreage of corn. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. That is our calling. That is our commission. To that end, let us pray today. Lord Jesus, in a few minutes, Jason is going to lead us in communion. He's going to take us to your table where we think about your sacrifice. We're going to share. We're going to think about your body that was broken and your blood that was shed and how we are partakers in eternal life because of your sinless life, sacrificial death, and resurrected victory. Lord, we want to be imitators of you. Would you help us to take the risks you're calling us to? Not stupid risks that are based on our own desires and the trends of the moment and other people's opinions of what our life should be, but the call that you're prompting us to. You speak in a still, small voice, and you still speak with that voice today. You tell us to keep in step with your spirit, to pray for wisdom, because you give it generously and abundantly. You are able to speak. Help us to not run ahead of you, and help us not to drag our feet when we've heard from you. Help us, Lord, to bless those who are being obedient, whether that's here in our church, uh, in nursery, or in worship, or in any one of the myriad of areas, or, or, or whether that's one of our brothers and sisters that you're sending around the world for the gospel that are discouraged. Because right now, the season they're in is planting. The season they're in is watering. The season they're in is hoeing out all these weeds, and they're not seeing the harvest, and they want to give up. And so you've given us each other, that we would encourage one another daily, that we would not let the hardness of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, win that we would not give up. Lord, help us to be this kind of church, a church that, that is, it, it, it is generous as you are generous in its people and in its possessions because we're stewards. Everything we have is yours. Help us to be the kind of church where, where we celebrate you sending out our sons and daughters and friends and neighbors across the world and across the street. Lord, I pray for next Sunday when we try to train the saints in how to share with those who don't yet know Jesus, that many of us would come and there would be some aspect of next Sunday in the morning and in the afternoon that helps us be better ambassadors for Jesus. That you'd help us to, to, to get the ball rolling, to, to, to turn the conversation to Jesus if it's rolling. Lord, we pray that you give us upfront in our face opportunities to share Christ that are so clear we couldn't walk away from them even if we wanted to. And then you do everything you promised to, that you give us the words to share when the opportunity appears. We pray, Lord, for a holy boldness alongside a loving meekness. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.